Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you, Father, that uh, we can gather together in full freedom to open your word and to hear your voice speaking to us through that word. We realize, Lord, that uh, very soon this privilege of freely worshiping you is going to come to an end. So, Lord, we just want to take advantage of these wonderful opportunities that you give us now in times of relative peace. We ask that as we open your word this evening that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide our thoughts and to open our hearts and help us to understand the message that you have for us. And we thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. It's found in volume 10 of Manuscript Releases, page 162. Here Ellen White is uh, describing the original temptation and fall of Adam and Eve with what is going to happen in the end time. This is not one of the better known statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. I read now from the inspired prophet that God has given to our church. If the angels were deceived by Lucifer's ingenious methods of misrepresenting God, if Adam and Eve were deceived by his declaration that God was withholding from them the higher education that would make them as gods, is there not danger that men today will be deceived? So notice he says, if the devil was able to deceive angels, and he was able to deceive Adam and Eve, is there any assurance that uh, he's not going to be able to deceive us? And then she gives this word of counsel. Please read the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets and see if the precious truths contained in this book are not given by the Lord to protect his people from deceptions that are urged upon them just now. So she's saying that we should study the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets. Do you know what the title of that chapter is? It's on the origin of evil. It describes in detail the methods that Satan used in heaven to deceive the angels. However, we're not going to focus on the original deception in heaven. We're going to focus on the deception that took place on earth. And of course, what the devil did on earth was a reflection of the methods that he used in heaven. We'll see several of those parallels. So in order to understand Satan's deceptions at the end, we have to understand his deceptions at the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning. And the first thing that I would like to underline is that when God created Adam and Eve, he surrounded them with every physical and spiritual blessing conceivable. All of these blessings were a sign of his love. He gave them fresh air, radiant sunshine, luxuriant plants, delicious sweet water, flowers, luscious fruit, animal companions, human companionship, 
They could have companionship with angels, and they could even speak face to face with God. What a tremendous gift, or what tremendous gifts God gave to Adam and Eve. Now it's important to realize that Adam and Eve did not earn any of this. They did not ask to exist. God simply created them and gave them all of these wonderful spiritual blessings, free of charge, as a gift. However, God wanted Adam and Eve to respond to his love, because all of these things were a sign of God's love. So God wanted a response from Adam and Eve, because God did not create automatons, God did not create robots that would automatically respond to him. You see, loving in response is a choice. So the giver of love wanted a response of love. By the way, this is the covenant idea in Genesis. Do you know what the covenant formula is in the Bible? I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the covenant formula. It's used time and again in both the Old and New Testaments. So God was saying, I created you, Adam and Eve, because I love you. I gave you all of these wonderful gifts because I loved you. Now what I want is I want you to form a covenant relationship with me. I want you to respond to my love. I want you to, to answer my love to you by returning that love so that I can be your God and you can choose to be my people. Of course, the way in which you show love is by obedience. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the way in which Adam and Eve would respond and show their love for God, show that they wanted to enter a covenant relationship with God, was by obeying explicitly God's word. In that way, they would be showing a response of love. And they would be showing also that they accepted the terms of the covenant. Do you remember that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he said to Israel that he wanted to be their God, and they answered everything that the Lord has said we will do? See, there's the covenant at Mount Sinai. So God creates Adam and Eve. He gives them all of these wonderful spiritual and physical blessings beyond what we can ever imagine. Adam and Eve didn't earn any of this. It was God's free gift to them. But God now wanted them to form a covenant relationship with him. He wanted them to respond to his love. And the way in which they would reveal their love for him was through obedience. And God gave them one command that he expected them to obey as a sign of their response to him, of their love to him. And we all know what that command was. Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 17, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 refer to this first command that God gave to Adam and Eve for them to accept the covenant and to reciprocate God's love. It says there, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Usually we think of God as a God of, uh, of restrictions, a God of prohibitions. But did you notice that here it says, first of all, God says, you can eat from all of the trees of the garden. His first decree is positive. So he says, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So if you obey me, you will keep my covenant. You'll reveal that you love me. You're reciprocating my love. And our relationship will be eternal. But if you disobey this one command, you will break in the covenant. And you will show that you love something else more than you love me. Now let me ask you. Was the command of God clear? Or was it ambiguous? It was clear. Was it simple? Was it a simple command? Or was it confusing? Did Adam and Eve say, well, you know, this is kind of complicated. I don't know, I don't really know what it means. No. It was clear. It was simple and it was easy to obey. You say, really? Let me ask you, do you suppose that Adam and Eve would have starved to death if they didn't eat from that tree? Of course not. You see, the big temptation of Eve is not appetite. It is appetite in the sense that she had appetite to be like God, we're going to notice. But it was not physical appetite. Because if they were hungry, they could eat from all of the trees of the garden. The primary problem was something else. It was not physical appetite. God didn't tell Adam and Eve, you fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And then come to the tree to see what you do. No, no. They could have eaten from all of the trees if they had wanted to. So the test was clear, it was simple, and it was easy to obey. God simply wanted them to give evidence of their love for him, their response to him, their covenant with him by obeying his command without question. Now have you noticed that God did not give them the reason why they couldn't eat from that specific tree? He told them the consequences if they ate, they would die. But God did not explain why they couldn't eat from that specific tree. In fact, Ellen White tells us that that tree did not look any different than any of the other trees. It was just as beautiful as all the other trees. It seems like God arbitrarily chose that tree. It didn't have an aura of light around it. The fruit wasn't bigger. It wasn't taller. It was just like all of the trees of the garden. And yet God said, I want you to abstain from eating the fruit of that tree and don't ask me for any explanations. Simply obey what I say for your good. They were to obey God without questions. Without questioning why. They were simply to obey. In fact, God warned them not to investigate why he had told them not to eat from that tree. Notice what Ellen White had to say in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 53. 
She stated, should they attempt to investigate the tree's nature? What does that mean, investigate the tree's nature? What was in the tree that led God to tell them not to eat from it? I mean, is this tree poisonous or something? Should they attempt to investigate the tree's nature, they would be exposed to his wiles, to the devil's wiles. They were admonished to give careful heed to the warning which God had sent them. Now listen carefully. And to be content with the instruction which he had seen fit to impart. To be what? Content. No questions. God says don't eat. We don't need any explanation as to why God said don't eat. We're not going to check into the nature of the tree. Why God said that? God said that we shouldn't eat and that's good enough for us. No need to investigate. Ellen White says that they should be content with the instruction that God had given. And remember, God had not given an explanation as to why they could not eat from that specific tree. Now another important thing that we need to notice in this story as we begin our study is that God was the one who defined what was good and what was evil outside of Adam and Eve. In other words, the standard of right and wrong was found outside of Adam and Eve, not inside. It was found externally, not internally. In other words, the definition of right and wrong was objective, not subjective. God made very clear, eating from the tree is evil, not eating from the tree is good. God was the arbiter and the definer of good and evil outside of Adam and Eve. It was that not their mind that defined what was good and evil. It was not their heart or their impressions or their feelings which defined good and evil. It was a standard that God established outside of them. God said, don't eat from the tree and eat from all of the other trees, good. Eat from this tree, evil. I define evil. You don't define good and evil. By the way, God had given Adam and Eve a warning that a powerful angel had fallen from heaven and that he was going to come to the Garden of Eden to tempt them, but he was, he was required to remain only at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could not go after them all across the garden. We're told that in Patriarchs and Prophets. Some people say, well, why do you, how do you know that from the Bible, that God had warned Adam and Eve? There's nothing in Genesis that says that. Well, you know, if we just think a little bit, it makes all the sense in the world. Let me ask you, can the devil transform himself into an angel of light? Do you think he can? It says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he transforms himself into an angel of light. So could he have appeared to Eve at the tree as an angel of light? Of course he, of course he could have. But what would have happened if he had appeared to Eve as an angel of light, God having warned them that an angel had fallen from heaven? 
she would have immediately said, ah, God told us that there was a powerful angel that fell from heaven. And he was going to try and convince us to eat from the tree. And you're an angel. you got to be that angel. And she would have left. So the devil says, I can't come like an angel. I have to come in a more hidden way. Are you following me? And so God had warned Adam and Eve that a powerful angel had fallen from heaven and he was going to come to tempt them. And basically what the devil did was use five methods to lead Adam and Eve to break their covenant with God. Their covenant of love with God. Their covenant of obedience with God. The devil used five methods. And those are the same five methods that he is using now and he will intensify as we near the end of time. Let's examine method number one. The devil performed a counterfeit miracle. Is the devil going to use miracles at the end of time? False miracles? Counterfeit miracles? It's all over the Bible. He will do signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. We're told in Matthew. And Revelation chapter 16 speaks about spirits of devils doing miracles going to the kings of the earth and the whole world to deceive them into opposing the government of God. So the first method is the devil performs a counterfeit miracle. You say, now what was the miracle? Well, let's read Genesis 3 verse 1. And we're only going to read a portion of it. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, let's stop there for a moment. He said to the woman, do serpents talk? Imagine going to the zoo and you're visiting the serpentarium and uh, there's this cage that has a, a large anaconda and as you're observing the anaconda he raises his head he says good afternoon <laughs> what would you do I'll bet you you'd be out of there in a hurry because everybody knows that serpents don't talk so would it be a miracle for a serpent to talk absolutely so the devil performs a counterfeit miracle. By the way, did Eve know that serpents don't talk? Or didn't talk? She did. Notice in the Spirit of Prophecy, volume 1, page 35, Ellen White explains, Satan entered into the serpent. He possessed the serpent, folks. The serpent was the first medium of human history. Satan entered into the serpent and took his position in the tree of knowledge and commenced leisurely eating the fruit. Why do you suppose he's eating the fruit? All of this is part of the devil's strategy. See, when we read scripture, we need to think about what we're reading. Ask the, the, the text questions. Why would the serpent be eating the fruit? Because God had said that if they ate the fruit, they would die, and here's a serpent eating the fruit, and he's not dead. And so he's going to use this argument, he's going, to, he's going to say, hey, I'm eating the fruit and I'm very much alive. But there's more. Not only that, Ellen White says that in the temptation, Satan says to the woman, 
you didn't know that serpents could speak, did you? And he says, well, no, I, I didn't think serpents could speak. So the serpent says, how do you suppose I learned how to speak? Well, you tell me. I ate the fruit. And when I ate the fruit, I gained the ability to speak. That's what Ellen White says. And so the serpent says, if I ate the fruit and I could learn how to speak, just imagine what you can learn. Are you catching the picture? So what the devil does is he performs a miracle. Ellen White states in that same book, but she was amazed, for she knew that to the serpent God had not given the, the power of speech. She knew that the serpent could not speak. And here there's a serpent speaking. This is a counterfeit miracle because it's not the serpent that's speaking, it's the devil. Is the devil going to perform miracles at the end of time? Behind the scenes? You better believe it. Now, is the devil able to read our body language? Do you think he can read the expressions on our face and know what we're thinking? Or guess what we're thinking? He's not able to read our thoughts. But by the expressions on our face and so on, he's a master psychologist. Now let me read you this statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 53. Let's read it slowly and carefully reflecting upon. See, when we read scripture, we have to reflect on scripture. Not only read it, but ask it questions. Why does it say it this way? Why did the devil do it that way? Why, why did the serpent eat from the fruit? Why, uh, why did the serpent um, say that he could learn to speak by eating the fruit? What, what was the purpose in all of that? Listen to this statement. The fruit was very beautiful. This is Eve. She, now, you need to imagine her. She's gone astray from Adam. And Adam is to blame also because he allowed her to stray, stray from his side, according to the spirit of prophecy. And she's walking through the garden. Suddenly, she's right next to the tree. And she's looking up at the tree, at the fruit. And she has a puzzled look on her face. How could such a beautiful tree lead to death? What does this tree have? It could be seen that she was questioning that on her face. Listen to what Ellen White states. The fruit was very beautiful, and she questioned with herself why God withheld it from them. She's looking at the fruit. Why in the world did God Tell us we could not eat from this tree. Now listen carefully. Now was the tempter's opportunity. As if he were able to discern the workings of her mind, did he have an idea what she was thinking based on the expression on her face? Oh yeah, she's a psychologist. Now notice that she's not saying that, that, he could, that he knew the workings of her mind. She says, of his mind, as if he were able to discern the workings of her mind, he addressed her. Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? <laughs> Is that what Eve was thinking? Why did God tell us not to eat from, the tree, from this tree of the garden? That's what she was thinking. And so, and so she's thinking that, so the devil says, hey, I'm going to 
I'm going to express what she's most likely thinking. That God, why has God told us not to eat from this tree? Ellen White continues saying, Eve was surprised and startled as she thus seemed, listen carefully, as she thus seemed to hear the echo of her thoughts. What was Eve hearing? The echo of her thoughts. Could the devil read her thoughts? No. But could he guess what she was thinking as she was looking at the tree? Absolutely. By the way, this is why Ellen White says that when we pray, we should do so in our mind and not give away what we're struggling with because Satan cannot read our thoughts, but he can read our body language. And when he sees our body language, you know, he can guess, he say, I think that that person's thinking about this, and so now he can come after us on that particular point. So Ellen White says, he was surprised and startled as she thus seemed to hear the echo of her thoughts. But the serpent continued in a musical voice with subtle praise of her surpassing loveliness. And his words were not displeasing. So what is the serpent using now? Flattery. Oh, Eve, you're just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And, and Ellen White says that his words were not displeasing. Instead of fleeing from the spot, she lingered, wonderingly to hear a serpent speak. Had she been addressed by a being like the angels, her fears would have been excited. But she had no thought that the fascinating serpent could become a medium of the fallen foe. So you see what's happening here? What the, what's the devil's first method? A counterfeit what? A counterfeit miracle. Now, method number two. The devil misused and abused the word of God. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed, that means has God really told you, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Is that what God had said? Is that what God had said? That they couldn't eat of every tree of the garden? No. What had God said? They could eat of every tree of the garden except one. Is he misquoting God's words? Yes. Now, he's misquoting God's word. Why would he misquote God's word? Did he know that Eve knew that God had said, you can eat from all the trees, but you can't eat from this one? Did the devil know that Eve had heard those words of God? Of course. So why did he misquote God if he already knew that Eve knew what God had really said? Let me tell you why. Because the devil wanted Eve to start a dialogue. 
And when you start dialoguing with the devil, you're lost. Let me ask you, when somebody makes a wrong statement, what is your immediate reaction? To correct. That's right. Are you following me? To correct with the person. For example, if I said to you right now, you see this coat? It's red. What would you do? No, it's not red. Are you colorblind? It's gray. It's not red. See, I got you to respond by making a wrong statement. The devil wants to start a dialogue with Eve. And so he misquotes God's word. And Eve, wanting to defend the honor of God, adds to God's word. So the second method is misuse of God's holy word. And not stating God's word as it is written. Notice Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. You're wrong. <laughs> Don't misquote what God said. We may eat of the trees, of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God had said? Don't touch it? Do you know what Ellen White says? That when Eve said, God has told us not to touch it, the serpent plucked a fruit and put it in her hand. I thank the Lord for the spirit of prophecy because it fills in details. It's not really an addition to God's word. It's a filling in of the picture that we already find in scripture. And when we use common sense in reading scripture and we pray to the Lord for divine enlightenment, it all fits together. And so we find here that Eve is adding to God's word. Let me read from the book Confrontation, page 14, from the Spirit of Prophecy. Ellen White says this, Eve had overstated the words of God's command. He had said to Adam and Eve, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. In Eve's controversy with the serpent, she added, neither shall ye touch it. She added to God's word. And the serpent misquoted God's word. Do you suppose that in the end time, that's going to be a problem in the Christian world? Adding to God's word, taking away from God's word, misquoting God's word, you better believe it. So the second method that the devil uses is to misquote or to abuse the word of God. Now the third method that the devil uses is what I base my title on for the presentation tonight. The third method of Satan is to lead people to follow impressions, emotions, feelings, and their own reasoning powers instead of what God said. In other words, following an internal standard except or instead of rather an external standard. In other words, doing what your heart says, doing what your brain says. See, that's logical. It makes sense. 
See, that's the way many people decide today. They don't go to the Bible and say, what does God say? No, no, no. Does it make sense? Is it logic, logical? Uh, does it, is it reasonable? Does it, does it make me feel good? In other words, the standard is inside. And by the way, that's what postmodern thinking is all about. See, in postmodern thinking, there are no moral absolutes outside of man. The standard of right and wrong is inside you. And so your standard of right and wrong might be different than mine, but we're both right. So you can believe that gay marriage is wrong, and I can believe that gay marriage is right. By the way, I don't. <laughs> and we're both right, because, because ethics are to be determined, determined not by an external standard given by somebody, but by what you feel or by what, what your emotions tell you. What the inside tells you. That's what postmodern thinking is all about. So now the devil is going to lead Eve to follow impressions, feelings, human reason. Go with me to Genesis 3 verse 4. Eve has just said, God told us that if we ate of this tree, we will surely die. Of course the serpent says, I eat and I'm alive. You said that if you touched it, you would die, but look, you have it in your hand. So the devil says you will not surely die. And now with Eve, she goes through an experience which, which psychologists call cognitive dissonance. Another way of expressing it is mental confusion. You say, what is the mental confusion? Well, here it is. God told us that if we ate of the fruit, we would surely die. The serpent is telling us that if we eat from the fruit, we will not surely die. Would that create somewhat of a confusion in your brain? Of course. Now let me ask you, what would your next thought be What would your next thought be if the serpent says, you know, God said you shall not eat of the tree because you'll die. The serpent says you shall not surely die. What would be, what thought is the devil trying to implant in the mind of Eve by saying you will not surely die? I'll tell you what. Then, why did God tell us that we were going to die? Are you with me or not? Two of you are. <laughs> Even wouldn't that make, be the next thought yeah God said we would die the serpent says we're not going to die so if we're not going to die why did God say that we were I want to know so let me ask you did the devil plant in Eve's mind a question yes he did by the way, is he going to provide the answer to his own question? Absolutely. The devil is playing mind games. He's a psychologist, folks. Let me ask you, what was the only protection for Eve? God said, don't eat. Period. That was their only protection. The word of God. They could not follow miracles. 
They could not follow God's word, misquoted. They could not follow their impressions, their feelings, their reason, their emotions. The only thing that she could trust was strictly obeying what God had said in his holy word. So God says, you will surely die. The serpent says, you will not surely die. So Eve is thinking, she's saying, well, then why did God tell us that we would die? Why did God lie to us? What is God's agenda? Are you with me? Do you suppose the devil has an answer as to what is God's agenda? Oh, he most certainly does. He's going to answer his own question. Notice Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. He plants the question and then he answers the question. Genesis 3 and verse 5. Now the devil is going to explain. He says, you will not surely die. Eve is saying, then why did God tell us we were going to die? So, so the devil says, now I'm going to tell you why God said that you're going to die. Verse 5. For God knows... God knows something that he doesn't want you to know. God knows. That in the day, notice, God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent is saying, the contrary, he's saying, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Is he talking about physical eyes? No, because Eve could see. Could she not? She could physically see. He's not saying you can, your eyes will be open so you can see physically. In other words, God wants you to be what? Blind. There's something that he's hiding from you that he wants you to be blind to. God knows that the day that you eat of the fruit... You won't be blind anymore. You'll have an understanding of something that God is trying to hide from you. Your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. Some versions say, God's. Not a good translation. It's the same word Elohim that appears in Genesis 1 verse 1. The devil is not telling Eve you're going to be little gods. He's saying you will be equal to God. You will be the full, God in the fullest sense of the word like God is. What he's telling Eve is that at some point in history, God ate from that tree, and when he ate from the tree, he got his powers as God. But after he, and I'm going to prove it, and after he ate, he said, wow, this tree gives magnificent powers. I don't want anyone else to have that power. So from that point on, God intimidated everyone by saying, if you eat from the tree, you're going to die. But really, his real motive was that he would have no rivals. No one like him. Are you with me? 
Now Eve is saying, my, what a selfish God. He's the only one that wants to be God. How selfish. God didn't explain why we couldn't eat from the tree. Now I know. Wow. Let me read you this statement from Ellen White. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 54. Speaking about what the devil said. And he insinuated that the Lord jealously desired to withhold it from them, lest they should be exalted to equality with himself. Did you get that? Why did God bar them from eating of the fruit of the tree? Because God jealously withheld it from them so that they would not be exalted to equality with him. Not little gods, but equal to God. By the way, he's using the same argument he used in heaven. He says, I will be like the Most High. Now he says, you will be like the Most High. He insinuated that the Lord jealously desired to withhold it from them, lest they should be exalted to equality with himself. It was because of its wonderful properties, imparting wisdom and power, that he had prohibited them from tasting or even touching it. When he says touching it, it's not that God had said that, but Eve had already said that, and so the devil is quoting her. Are you with me? And then the statement continues by saying, listen carefully, the tempter intimated that the divine warning was not to, to be actually fulfilled. It was designed merely to intimidate them. Are you catching the picture? See, there's much more than just reading the text in Genesis. There's all kinds of, of, of things happening here. So basically, the devil answers his own question. He says, well, you, you're wondering why God told you not to eat from the tree and that he told you you were going to die. Come on, it's because he doesn't want any rivals around. He only wants to be God by himself. He wants you to be blind to that fact. But if you eat from the tree, God knows that you're going to be just like him and God doesn't want any rivals. So what he told you that if you ate from the tree you were going to die, was only to intimidate you so that you wouldn't eat from the tree. Wow. But there's one other point that I want us to notice, which is crucially important. Once again, it says in Genesis 3, verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, now notice, you will be like God in a certain special sense, is what he's saying. In what sense would they be like God? Knowing good and evil. Let me ask you, who is it that defines good and evil? It's God. Inside you or outside of you? Listen, folks. The standard of good and evil is in a book outside of you. And that book is called the Bible. In other words, the standard of right and wrong is not in your heart. 
The standard of right and wrong is in God's word, God's written word. Ellen White says that it is the test of experience. And it's the definer of doctrine, the word, what God has said. What the devil wants to do is he wants to introduce a different standard. He wants you to think that you can be the standard of right and wrong. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't have to have God telling you what is good and evil. You will have that capacity yourself. That's postmodern thinking. The devil is doing the same thing with Eve as he did in heaven with the angels. Let me read you two statements from Ellen White. Great Controversy 499. This is the devil in heaven, Lucifer in heaven. He reiterated his claim that angels needed no control, but should be left to follow their own will, which would ever guide them right. What did he say would be the standard for the angels? What God had said? No. They needed no control, no external control. They should be allowed to follow their own will, which would always guide them to what was right. Is that a sure guide? She continues saying, He denounced the divine statutes as a restriction of their liberty and declared that it was his purpose to secure the abolition of law, that freed from this restraint, the hosts of heaven might enter upon a more exalted, more glorious state of existence. That you're going to ascend, is what he's saying. Is that what he told Eve? You'll ascend. A more exalted and glorious existence is open to you if you disobey God's word. The other statement is found in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 37. Speaking about Lucifer, he began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that though laws might be necessary for the inhabitants of the worlds, angels, being more exalted, needed no such restraint for their own wisdom was a sufficient guide. Are you following me? By the way, I don't know how you feel about this. Maybe I'm opening a can of worms. But this is what the women's ordination issue is all about. Will you take the Bible seriously when it says that the elder or the, or the minister, the ordained minister, must be the husband of one wife. Now what part of husband of one wife don't you understand? Oh, but women are tremendously gifted. Yes, they are. But spiritual gifts are different than a church office. The Bible gives the order. The father is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. We might not like that, but that's what God says. And we can be safe when we take him at his word. When we start trying to, 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 to 
explain away his clear word, we enter all sorts of issues and problems. And by the way, the emerging church movement in the Adventist church, where is the standard? No doctrine. No external doctrines. That's the idea of the one project. No doctrine outside of us. Only Jesus inside. And let me tell you, when you do not check the Jesus inside by the Jesus outside, you will be following the wrong Jesus. Because the external word of God is the test. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and extremely wicked. I'm getting excited now. <laughs> Eve bought Satan's argument. Bait, hook, line, sinker, fishing pole, fisherman, and boat. She followed her own heart, which is what postmoderns do. And that's why the world is in such a mess. Method number four. Satan led Eve to follow the testimony of her senses. Is it safe to follow what your senses say? No. Notice Genesis 3 verse 6. The first part of the verse. Genesis 3 verse 6. By the way, have the ears of Eve been involved to this point? Has she been hearing pretty things? Her ears are involved. Are her eyes involved? Is her touch involved? Does the fruit look tasty? Let's read Genesis 3 verse 6. First part. So when the woman saw, there are the eyes, that the tree was good for food, there's your taste. That it was pleasant to the eyes, there's once again. And a tree desirable to make one wise, that had to do with her hearing what the serpent was saying. She took, there the touch is involved, she took and she ate. She followed the testimony of her senses instead of obeying the word of God. Let me give you a biblical story that illustrates the contrast between following your senses and doing what God says. And sometimes when we do what God says, it gets us into all kinds of trouble. Let's take, for example, the story of Samson. What was Samson's guide in making decisions? His eyes and his ears. He found this Philistine woman, very beautiful. He went to his parents, which was the custom back then. He says, I, I, want, I want that woman. I want to marry that woman. And his parents say, now wait a minute. God has given an external standard. He says, we're not supposed to marry people that are not of our own faith. Do you know what Samson said? You can read it in, in Judges 14 verse 2. He says, get her for me because she's pleased my eyes and it cost him his eyes. There's a lesson there. How different was Joseph? 
There's this other beautiful woman, Potiphar's wife. She spoke pretty words to Joseph. And one day she tried to entice him into committing adultery. Did Joseph follow the testimony of his eyes? No! What was the standard of Joseph? How can I commit this terrible sin against my God? His standard was outside in the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He ignored what his ears and his eyes said when it contradicted what God says. Once again, we can only trust the word. Method number five. Satan uses people to tempt people. Satan did not have to tempt Adam. He used Eve to tempt Adam. The devil doesn't tempt everybody directly. The devil will use people to tempt people. It says in the last part of Genesis 3 verse 6, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Ellen White has an interesting comment about this. By the way, uh, for those of you who are not um, on our mailing list, Secret Sunseal mailing list, I would encourage you to sign up. It's free. I have some cards over at the, this table where you can sign up to get our next newsletter. Uh, the title of the long article that I wrote is called The Risk of Eternal Loss. It's a sermon that I preached at uh, GYC, but now I wrote it out because I had, I had a division president and a conference president and I had somebody from the Biblical Research Institute say, you gotta write that out. And so I took them up on it and I, and I wrote it out. And uh, you know, once you're on our mailing list, uh, you can receive it either by hard copy or you can receive it uh, electronically. So, um, but it's interesting, in that sermon, uh, I discuss that Adam Adam's great sin, even though eating from the fruit was sin, his great sin was that he loved Eve more than he loved God. Do you know the Father had the same trial? God the Father? He had to decide whether he would love his own son more than he loved us. So, so there's a parallel there. Now notice, notice here what we find in Patriarchs and Prophets 56 and 57. It speaks about why Adam gave in to temptation. Love, gratitude, loyalty to the Creator, all were overborne by love to Eve. She was a part of himself. Notice, a part of himself. Interesting. Literally. By the way, do you know that she had Adam's identical DNA? You know, we have the DNA of our father and mother, but Eve had only Adam's DNA. <laughs> That's profound. I'm going to be writing an article. I'm going to be writing an article on this because it helps us understand the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Godhead, something that had been gravely missed in Adventist theology. See, 
there's a persuasive case that can be presented in Scripture that the relationship between Adam and Eve was to be a reflection, a small-scale reflection, of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Godhead. But let's not talk about that now. She was a part of himself. And he could not endure the thought of separation. Could God the Father endure the thought of separation from his Son? And yet he gave him up. He did the opposite of Adam. She continues saying, he did not realize that the same infinite power who had from the dust of the earth created him a living, beautiful form and had in love given him a companion could supply her place. He resolved to share her fate. If she must die, he would die with her. And now notice how rationalization comes in. <laughs> Ellen White says that he knew that she'd blown it. But then he rationally said, well, maybe the serpent was right. Listen to the way, the way she explains it. After all, he reasoned, might not the words of the wise serpent be true? Eve was before him as beautiful and apparently as innocent as before this act of disobedience. Notice that nakedness did not come until Adam sinned. And God held Adam as the head of the human race, accountable, significant. Eve was before him as beautiful and apparently as innocent as before this act of disobedience. And now notice, she expressed greater love for him than before. No sign of death appeared in her. And he decided to brave the consequences. He seized the fruit and quickly ate. And therefore, we are in Delaware at camp meeting. <laughs> Instead of being in Zion. But the good news is we're going forward to Zion. Now let me ask you, is the devil going to use authorities at the end of time, scholars to tempt the people? Let me read you a couple of statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. This is Great Controversy 595. Listen carefully. I believe that one of the big problems that we have in our church is with scholars. Scholars who quote other scholars rather than the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy. This is what she says, Satan is constantly endeavoring to attract attention to man in the place of God. He leads the people to look to bishops, to pastors, to professors of theology as their guides instead of searching the scriptures to learn their duty for themselves. Then, by controlling the minds of these leaders, he can influence the multitudes according to his will. People being used by the devil to tempt people. Page 598 and 599 of Great Controversy, Ellen White states the truths most plainly revealed in the Bible have been involved in doubt and darkness by learned men. Did you catch that? 
the truths most plainly revealed in the Bible. You're not talking about things that, well, you know, no. The things most plainly revealed in the Bible have been involved in doubt and darkness by learned men who, with a pretense of great wisdom, teach that the scriptures have a mystical, a secret, spiritual meaning not apparent in the language employed. These men are false teachers. It was to such a class that Jesus declared, Ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning, unless a symbol or figure is employed. Christ has given the promise, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. If men would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make the angels glad and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. People tempting people. So what is the standard? The standard is God's external word. But in order to know what the standard is, we have to study the word. To have it as a reference point. Trouble is many Christians are not able to say it is written because they don't know where it's written. And worse, some are not able to state it is written because they don't even know if it's written. Jesus answered the devil by saying, it is written. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, you look like an angel of light, but I'm, you know, I don't feel that there's something that's wrong here. No. Immediately Jesus said, it is written. Everything needs to be checked by an external standard. I want to tell you a story to end. Many years ago I had the privilege of teaching theology for six years in our university in the city of Medellin, Colombia. Brother David knows that place very well. In fact, when I went to school there, he wasn't even in existence yet. <laughs> he later came on the scene. But one afternoon, I went downtown to purchase some merchandise in a store. And I took out a 10,000 peso bill, went to the cash register with the merchandise. I gave the 10,000 peso bill to the cashier. And of course she took the bill and she put it in the light to look at it in the light and then she crumpled the bill in her hand and then there was a black light there, she put it under there. And, um, and then she did something which was kind of scary. She said to a policeman that was nearby, come here, this man has given me a counterfeit 10,000 peso bill. You know, down there you're guilty until proven innocent. And so I, I was a little concerned. And so another policeman joined him. They each took me one by uh, one on one arm and one on the other arm. They took me to a back room. They started interrogating me. Said, Where do you have the machinery? <laughs> I said, I'm not a counterfeiter. I said, I don't, I don't check every bill that I pay with. They said, well, you should. And then one of the policemen asked me, he said, well, 
what, what kind of work do you do? I said, I'm a, a theology teacher at our Seventh-day Adventist University, Instituto Colombo Venezolano. And when I said that, the expression on the face of the policeman totally changed for the good. He said, he looked at me and said, you teach there? He says, I said, yeah. He says, wow, that school cannot produce counterfeiters. I know the people there. They're good people. So I'm feeling pretty good. I said, okay, he likes our school. And then he said, listen, I'm going to show you how to distinguish between a counterfeit 10,000 peso bill and a genuine 10,000 peso bill. So he went to the cash register, he got the counterfeit bill, and he went and he got the genuine uh, 10,000 peso bill. And he said, he put up first of all the, the genuine bill in the light. He said, do you see a brown line running through the bill? I said, oh yeah, it's there. He said, do you see the faces on the bill that are ingrained into the bill? Do you see that they're nice and clear? Yeah, they look pretty clear to me. And then he took the bill and he crumpled it up and it's made of a paper that kind of just opens up like a flower. And then he put it under the black light and the two circles where the two faces were shown. He says, now I'm going to show you the counterfeit bill. Put it up in the light. Do you see a brown line? Not there. Says, look at the faces. Are they clear? Oh no, they were all blurry. He crumpled it up and it stayed crumpled. And he put it under the light and nothing shone. He says, now next time that you pay, make sure that you determine that the bill, if it's a 20,000 peso bill or 10,000 peso bill, make sure that you compare the bill with the standards that I have shared with you. Let me ask you, was it enough to have a hunch that the bill was genuine? Well, yeah, it looks okay. No, what did I have to do? I had to check that bill and compare it with what is genuine to determine if it was genuine or not. Right? You know, and then sometimes I would go by the cash register and I would pay with a 20,000 peso bill. And of course the, cash the cashier would put it in the light, go through the operation. And when she would give me the change, a 10,000 peso bill and change, I would take it, I would look it in the light. And, and uh, one day one of the cashiers says to me, what, don't you trust me? I said, I trust you just as much as you trust me. Because she'd already looked at the bill. Then I told her a little bit about the story, how you can't just go by appearances, you can't go by hunches and by feelings and emotions, just because it looks like a 10,000 peso bill doesn't mean that it is. You've got to check it out versus the genuine. So what is our, our only protection in these last days? With so many doctrines, so many miracles that are going to come, so many people that have different things to say, where reasoning and logic appears to be perfectly acceptable, where what your senses say is right, what is our only protection? To know God's word and to abide by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But for that we have to study the word. We have to quit watching so much television. 
and wasting time on social media. Social media is a great blessing, don't get me wrong. But, you know, things like Facebook can be a vice. Can be habit forming. I know people who sit for hours on their Facebook. For hours texting. Not bad to text. But it can become an obsession. An all-consuming obsession. And take away time from what really would strengthen our mind, which would be studying God's word firsthand. So that we can be prepared to face the great temptations of Satan at the end of time. So did you understand what we studied tonight? The importance of what we studied tonight? So the question is, what are we going to do about it? You know, we come to camp meeting, we get all excited. Wow, this is great, you know, the fellowship and the food and, and, you know, the preaching and everything, this is great. And then a week later, it's like we were living before we came to camp meeting. That can't happen. We're living too far advanced in the history of this world. I believe, I firmly believe that Jesus will come in this generation. I'm not predicting a date, but by all of the signs, and I'll be sharing this with you tomorrow, our day in prophecy, all of the signs indicate that we are on the very threshold of Zion, on the very threshold of heaven. And we need to be ready to face the devil. We need to be ready to face the temptations and the trials that await us, which are going to be huge. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your holy word. We thank you that you have given us a way in which we can check everything in this world to see if it squares with your will. And that is the truth as it is found in your holy book. Help us, Lord, to live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth that that might be our only standard of ethics, of behavior, of conduct. We thank you, Father, for having been with us, for answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.